you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Good morning, City on a Hill. Um, so the Bible reading we're going to be doing today is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through to 12. Yeah, so while you're flicking through to that page, I'll just introduce myself. My name is Steve. Um, I am a second-year student studying a primary school um, degree. Um, and while I'm not doing that, I am a part of the Bayswater GC. So that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. So let's read. Likewise. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct, conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty and of the gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you and her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we? Good to see you. Thanks for joining us. So encouraging to have a consistent week-to-week uh, physical moment in the room together. So thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name's Nick. I get the joy of being the lead pastor of this church and today the joy uh, of unpacking this seemingly on the surface controversial, might make you twitch kind of passage. Uh, we're going to dive in to see what God actually has to say for us through it. And so let's do that. Let's ask for God's help. Please pray with me. Uh, before we dive in. Gracious God, we so want to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. We uh, don't want to take for granted that when we open the Bible, it's you who are speaking. We get to read your words. And so come and uh, help us have hearts that are going to be able to hear and see and respond to what you want to say to us today. We need your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. And so show us Jesus. Jesus, would you be big? In this moment, we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, today we are wrapping up, landing the plane on a line of thought that Peter has been on for the last three 
weeks. He has told us at the very beginning of the book that we are elect exiles, that we've been born again to a living hope, that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house, that we are to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus out into the world. And then for the last three weeks, he gave us a very surprising way to do that. Submit yourselves to the governing authorities. Servants, be subject to your masters. And the reason that he's had to go into detail about applying and wanting to reason with us and and, and show us the, the big vision for why we should submit ourselves, why we should be humble, is because if you're anything like me, this kind of thing does not come naturally to our hearts. This kind of thing does not come naturally to the human heart. It is normal for us to want to defy authority or to be hostile to people who might mistreat us or misunderstand us. And the newfound Christians that Peter was writing to would have sensed this and would have felt this, particularly because they will have just heard that, hey, you now serve a new master. You now have a new Lord. And so they would have thought, hey, we no longer need to serve the emperor. We no longer need to perhaps show up for work. Rather, we can do what we want because we are in Jesus. You see, only until very recently and only until, I guess, the Western world adopted and was formed by the uh, Christian moral vision of the world, It's only until very recently has war become an anomaly. And now when we see it on the TV and we see it in social media, it's shocking to us. We have a sense that this is not the way the world is meant to be. But not every culture thinks that because the natural state of the human heart is combative, is defensive, is self-serving. And so today Peter's going to take us to a new sphere, but the same call remains about humility, about being in subjection. And today he talks particularly into the home, into wives and husbands. And then we're going to wrap up and land the plane on this thought as he turns to talk to all of us. Now, sometimes we joke about it and other times it's a little bit more serious, but there's a bit of a prevailing narrative in our culture, isn't there, that that women and men are at war, that women and men are at odds with each other. And some of you will, if you've been to a sermon, uh, been to a, a wedding that I've uh, preached a sermon at, uh, you've heard the one wedding joke that I have. And that is that there are three rings in every marriage. First, there's the engagement ring, and then there's the wedding ring, and then from there, it's all suffering. And it's a joke. And it's a joke that I want to share at the beginning of a marriage to help prepare this new happy couple for what the reality is. And that is that when you get two sinners together, in a marriage, sparks fly. Jules and I often lead uh, couples through pre-marriage counselling. And it's not just us, but, but if you go to any pre-marriage counsellor around the world, the first week with the most content for every single couple in all the world, it's conflict resolution. Isn't that fascinating? Just think about that. It's the happiest time of your life trying to you know, get prepared for marriage. And on the one hand, it's reassuring that, hey, everybody faces conflict, and so we need to get better at it, and so everybody, it's it's normal. But on the other hand, isn't it revealing that the one thing that you are meant to prepare for most is how to fight well, how to argue well about conflict resolution? Such is the state of the human heart. A lighthearted example in in my own home, uh, most of the conflict in the Coombs household is about me forgetting uh, to put my towel back in the bathroom. Any husbands in here? Relate. Just me. You're incredible, men. Well done. 
Because I've got a particular commitment to laundry purgatory. Laundry purgatory is that place in the bedroom where you've worn something once. And because you've worn it once, you didn't make it dirty. It doesn't need to get washed. But it's also, you've worn it once. It can't go back with the clean clothes. And so we all have this one place in the bedroom where we put our clothes that aren't quite clean but shouldn't be washed in laundry purgatory. And what I do is I think that the towel should also sometimes go there. But apparently towels don't dry unless they're hung up, uh, which I'm still learning. Now, if you are married, you've probably got your own million examples that that cause conflict in the home. And today, for the first part of our, our talk and the first part of our passage, Peter wants to address how wives and husbands relate together, about how we can love each other well in a countercultural way that isn't hostile, that isn't at war with one another, but is actually working together to love each other well. And then we're going to open it up as, as Peter lands the plane and, and talks to all of us. And so let's turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, if you're not there already. And let's first talk about humility in the home. Humility in the home. Peter directs uh, his attention to the wives first. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, I'm conscious that as uh, some of the women are hearing that, you've already begun twitching, uh, such as the discomfort uh, of, of what you are hearing here. It is very culturally controversial. Uh, but let's perhaps dive into it. Let's, let's see what Peter is actually saying, because he starts here with this word, likewise, or we could say, in the same way. And that lets us know that he's not telling wives, and he's going to say a very similar thing, likewise, to husbands in, in verse 7. He's not telling us today anything different than what he's been telling us already in this same line of thought. He is just applying the same realities and the same call to a new sphere of our lives. He's continuing the same train of thought that submission can help point other people to Jesus. And now in the immediate context of this particular culture Peter's writing to, husbands, and particularly the oldest living male in a household, had all the power. And a wife who became a Christian and continued to to live with this non-Christian husband, it would have been very tempting for them to extrapolate their now newfound freedom in Christ from their freedom to their freedom from their husband. They obey a new Lord now. And so Peter wants to clarify something for these new Christians. He wants them to know that actually it would be good for you to continue living with your non-Christians. But you should indeed continue living with your non-Christian husband. And in fact, even more than that, a wife should continue to submit to her husband's leadership, especially through respectful and pure conduct toward him and toward God, so that she might point him to Jesus through her humility. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, we know that submission isn't just a call to a wife. In fact, all of us are called to submit in some way. And in fact, submission in in, in a marriage isn't just uh, limited to a a wife to a non-Christian husband, but rather it is regardless of their beliefs. And now that is a hard saying in our culture, because rightly so, we are now far more conscious of the ways leadership can be misused and abused. And so it's important that whenever we hear the Bible, uh, 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 see in the Bible this concept, it's important to know that any God-given responsibility entrusted to a person is entrusted to that person for the sake of other people, for the good of other people. 
for the flourishing of other people. The book of Ephesians talks about the, the, the way that a husband has the responsibility that he might serve his wife like Christ serves the church. Going so far even as to lay down his life in death for the sake of his wife, just as Christ did the church. Peter's going to say in a few verses time that a husband is called to, to honour his wife and seek her flourishing. And so any talk of, sometimes the Bible uses the word headship or, or, or head, any talk of headship or leadership, it actually, we have to define it the way the Bible defines it. There is no room to use, take this concept that sounds like a leadership moment and then twist it as an excuse for abuse. There is absolutely no possibility you could take this biblical idea and have it justify mistreatment. In fact, it is a particular evil to take something that is good and God-given, to take this responsibility and twist it for self-serving ends. And so let's be clear. Last week we saw that, that, hey, servants, be subject to your masters. But but there's going to be times where we need to do good that's in contradiction to our masters. And in the same case here, wives are not called to submit to sin. There is a greater good to uphold beyond human authority. Women are not called to tolerate abuse. Submission is not synonymous with physical, emotional, or spiritual suffering. And just to be clear, because we need to be clear sometimes, wives, if you are here, and you are experiencing all that, or you do experience something like that, it is important for you to know that you should remove yourself and your children from any danger, and that we as a church completely support you in that, in seeking safety. And so Peter here is, is making it clear that there are ways to love each other well in marriage through humility. That a husband has this call to honour and protect and provide and sacrifice for his wife. And so too, a wife is called to respect and serve her husband. And so in a marriage, there should be a little bit of a, a competitive dynamic. When we play board games at my house, there is a very hostile competitive dynamic. I'm not talking about that competitive dynamic. There should be a, a, a competition to outdo one another in humility, in honour, in love and service. But this doesn't come naturally to us, and sometimes it, it, it comes unnaturally to us in different ways. And so Peter particularly wants to double-click in on how this might be a temptation for the wives. And so he talks about how this character needs to be shown in respectful and pure conduct. Verse 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. It's fascinating that we could rewind 2,000 years, even before big marketing dollars, a modeling industry, Teen Vogue, Instagram, social media, even before there was even the, the idea or the concept that you would have enough disposable income to go shopping and buy new clothes, 
there was still a temptation for women to focus on the superficial, to focus on the external. Now, those more recent additions to our culture, like social media and all those sorts of things, are perhaps doing what marketing does best, and that is tapping in to the shadow side of our human nature and trying to profit from it. But Peter's going to pick up here on this temptation to, to look the part before others, to look well put together, and in doing so, to neglect the hidden person of the heart. That perhaps there was a particular temptation to want to use attractiveness, use the, the physical side of things to gain good standing with others. Well, Peter tells us that, that God finds the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit very precious. And so our world, and perhaps your flesh, is going to tell you that what is most valuable is the image that you project. That every picture needs to be insta-worthy, you need to be made up, glammed up, well put together. But the looks you get when you do that aren't nearly as important as what God himself sees. And nothing is private to him. And what God sees as precious is what's going on inside. What God sees as precious is the character of a woman. And so, he, ladies, he is watching your heart. He is watching how your character is expressed toward your husband. And what he longs to see is gentleness, fearlessness, peace. And notice when we talk about those things, Peter's not talking about personality traits. Peter's not saying, hey, if you're a Christian woman, you need to be an introvert. You need to be uh, INFP on the Myers-Briggs personality test. He wants to box all wives into this one category. You know, some of the most, and praise God for this, some of the most spiritually mature women I know are not quiet. They are not gentle for good. Because what Peter's talking about here is a quiet and gentle spirit. A quiet and gentle spirit. Imperishable beauty is not quarrelsome. It's eager to see peace. It's, it's fiercely committed, sometimes in very loud ways, to humility. And so he uses Sarah as an example, because there's this moment in Genesis 18 where Sarah calls uh, her husband, Abraham, Lord. And you know, you can actually go online right now and you can buy a, a little kind of one-by-one square metre plot of land in Scotland. And if you do that, you get a certificate that compels everybody else to have to call you Lord. And so if you know Carl Ludic in our church, he's actually done that. So uh, we actually have to call him Lord and he was here at the nine and we all acknowledged his presence uh, in our midst. But in the days of Abraham, to use the, the language of, of Lord was really just like what we would say is Sir or Mister, a, a, a point of endearment, a title of, of respect. And so Sarah did so, and, and, and Peter's saying here that that was actually indicative of what was going on in her heart, that, that she had a trust for her husband, an honour and a, a respect for her husband. She had a humility. And so wives, we've got to ask the question, or Peter is asking you uh, the question, is that true of you? When you think about perishable beauty, that's going to fade. You think about imperishable beauty, what God deems is very precious, where is your focus? Where is your focus? How is your character, for those who are married, how is your, your character exposed 
in the way you respond to your husband, in your relationship with your husband? Where is your focus? And right now, the husbands in the room are thinking, yeah, you tell her. But the Lord, gentlemen, has even more to say to us. He is, he's far more blunter to the husbands because he turns now in verse 7 to the husbands and he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see, whenever the Bible speaks, particularly to wives or to women, it immediately God wants to speak to husbands or to, to men. This is, a, this is a two-player game that we are in at the moment. That God wants both of us together to be working on this. Now, on Friday night uh, in our household, I was in charge of date night. Uh, and you should have seen the romance. You know, the lights were dimmed. The cheese platter came out. Had a glass of wine, chocolates. And then I pulled out the Xbox. And Jules and I played a two-player game. And before you judge us... You should know that this is like a game that's about, it's like marriage counselling in a game. Uh, it's called It Takes Two. And this game tracks a, a story of a, a couple who are on the brink of divorce. And they've got a, a young girl, couldn't be more than five or six years old, and their, their marriage has gotten to the state where their, their communication has broken down, life's gotten so busy, it's over. And so they have to tell their daughter that their mummy and daddy aren't going to be together anymore. And obviously, her, her, the daughter so wants her mum and her dad to, to stay together that she, she creates these, these two little dolls. And through some video game magic, her mum and her dad become these goals, dolls. And so the game is playing together with your spouse, partner, through all these different activities and levels and you have to communicate and collaborate and you can't advance to the next level without each other and you can't do certain things if the other one doesn't do something first and it's marriage counselling in a game. You know, God is very repetitive in the New Testament in wanting to show married couples that you are both going to have to give here. Husbands, lay down your lives as Christ did for the church. Wives, be subject to your husbands with respect and pure conduct. You are going to have to work together on this. It takes humility for both in a couple. And so in this case, the man is challenged. So let's read this verse again. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, there's three particular reasons in that one verse that husbands should be particularly considerate of their wives. Peter says that husbands should honour the general reality that a woman, by God's design, is physically weaker than her husband. Now, Peter uses the term here, weaker vessel, uh, to point out what I hope isn't a controversial point, that that women are generally physically weaker than men, that, that by God's design... Men typically have broader shoulders, larger stature, more muscle mass. And that reality is in a point of, it's not a point of, of, of value. In fact, it's the opposite. The, the, the weakness, the physical weakness of the woman actually adds to the honor she should receive. And he reiterates this point about leadership, that husbands should use their strength to honor their wives, not against their wives. They're all the more precious and worthy 
of honor. And that leads to the second point. It's because, Peter says, a wife is a fellow heir of God's grace with the husband. And so here Peter has opened up the audience to not just be talking to husbands who are married to non-Christian women, talking now to Christian husbands and wives, that together they are co-heirs of Christ. Now in the gospel, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. The differences remain between us, of course. And yet, there is an incredible countercultural equality in the gospel. God made men together, God made men and women together in His image. God gave men and women together a commission, a mandate, go forth, multiply, take dominion. And tragically, men and women together rejected God, turned away from God, have sinned and and fallen short of what He calls us to be. And because of that sin, we've together fallen into condemnation. But God has come to a man. God has come to the world as a man in Jesus to save both men and women to establish a new kingdom for men and women, to create a new family made up of men and women, to build the the new heavens and the new earth for men and women. And so herein lies the gospel, that when you are an heir, you're not an heir because you've earned it. You're an heir because you receive it. You receive an inheritance. And in the gospel, Jesus has done it all. We do not come to God because we earn that by obedience or the way we live or our performance, no, by God's grace, He calls us out of our sin and He forgives us and He adopts us and He calls us into His new family. And so grace is His unmerited, undeserved favor. And so husbands have been particularly entrusted with a glorious responsibility and an opportunity to point their wives to this reality, that we are together together heirs before God and His grace in the gospel, to take the lead in in raising the spiritual temperature in the marriage, in the home, that Jesus might be the head, that Jesus might be the one who leads in your marriage and in your home. And so therefore, husbands, if if you're going to treat your wife as any lesser, as not a co-heir or not worthy of honor and protection and consideration. It's actually to ignore the grace of God in the gospel. It's to be anti-gospel. It's to preach false doctrine. It's to be a heretic in practice, which is why Peter's third point to the husband is so clear and so chilling. The third point is that if you don't do this, your prayers will be ignored. That if you do not live with your wife in a considerate way, and honor her, your prayers will be ignored. That's very blunt. God will not listen to you if you are not listening to your wife. You know, the assurance we have that God hears our prayers is because we read that He does in the Bible. God tells us He does in the Bible. So by faith, we trust that when we're praying, God is listening to us. And so it is particularly chilling to hear in the same Bible that there are moments when God won't hear our prayers. And so you could have just an incredible goosebump-inducing worship moment. You could have a powerful, emotionally impacting and inspiring quiet time. You could be in a prayer meeting where you pray prayers with such passion and articulation that other people are, are yes and amen in you along. And if at home you aren't honoring and being considerate of your wife, 
then the Lord has his hands over his ears. Your prayers won't make it out of the room. He's not listening to you. You know, Peter asks husbands the same question. He asks the wives, where is your focus? I know there's a lot of things that we men in our lives can be considerate of. You know, when I was 18, I spent time, perhaps as a distraction from year 12, memorizing the footy jumper numbers of every single player in the AFL. And I did it. That was a a lot of consideration. And we have a lot of consideration as men. You know, what's going on in the sporting world, the financial markets, our favorite hobbies, the next improvement project. Man, you have a lot of understanding and consideration in you. Is it directed toward your wife? Is it directed toward your wife? And so for those who are married here, wives and husbands, Peter is giving us here some homework. Take a moment this week to get alone, to read this passage and to ask each other, how is our marriage going? That dangerous and yet very healthy question. How is our marriage going? How can we serve each other better? How can we honor one another better? What does humility look like in our home? Now, Peter is going to open up to address all of us because these ideas, submission and humility and loving well, they're not just for married people. And so he turns, let's talk now about uh, this moral bucket list that Peter gives us. He writes in in verse 8 and 9, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You know, our world in the last couple of years has been on an absolute bender of reflection on what really matters in life, haven't we? That COVID and lockdowns caused us to, to think about what really matters. Now we see on our screens war makes, makes us think about what is most valuable when things can be taken. And perhaps we, we uh, are inspired as well by the death of public figures like Warney. Our life can be taken so out of the blue. We have to think about what really matters. I've referenced before a helpful article I've read online called The Moral Bucket List. It's written by David Brooks from the New York Times. And he writes about this, this idea, this, this something that we, that we know to be true, and yet we need moments like this to reflect upon it, to consider it. He talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are, are those things in your life you try to cultivate to put on the resume. Your experience, your degrees, your proficiency at Microsoft Excel, your ability to code, your public speaking, your organizing and leading, how big a budget you've managed before, how many team members you've managed before, all the accomplishments that you want people to know about. And then on the other hand, eulogy virtues are those things that don't go on the resume, but you really would love to be known for them because you want people to bring them up at your funeral. They're the things that Peter says here, for all of us, are what really matters, are what Christian character should look like. Unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, humility. And if you're anything like me, you you give a lot of time to the resume virtues. Very little time and attention to cultivating these eulogy virtues. And yet we all know that, that one of them is not like the other. Eulogy virtues are what matters. 
None of us want to be that person that when our family and friends gather around us at the funeral, have to like grasp the things to say. Have to think about what, what should we commend about this person. And in grasping, have to like only get at superficial things, like he was really committed to the Carlton Football Club. No one wants that. Not just because it's Carlton. You don't want, not want to be known for the footy team you support. You want to be known for how you love, for your humility, for your character, for your sympathy, for your tenderness, for your gentleness. Being proficient in these things is incomparable in comparison to proficiency in the things that we give a lot of our time to. And so Peter here gives us this, this moral bucket list, attributes that, that God himself is telling us he wants us to be known for. The things that he wants others to speak about at our funeral. And Peter quotes from, from David in the Psalm, Psalm 34, where David's kind of doing a very similar thing to young people uh, through this Psalm. He's trying to give them a vision for their moral life. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so this is completely countercultural to, to what we are schooled and discipled into thinking that life is all about. Our flesh wants us to, to use our energy in our life obtaining power for ourselves. The world will have us that we need to focus on the things that are outwardly attractive or impressive. The systems we grew up in are going to bend us toward proficiencies and, and competencies and earning and learning more and more. But when you're at the end of your life or somebody around you has just lost theirs, you've been given a gift, a gift of clarity to be able to see and discern what really matters. This is what God and Peter is doing for us now. Make your life count by living like Jesus. Make your life count by, by having the heart that wants to bless others instead of see yourself blessed. Ironically, it's the way to be blessed. And so all of you, Peter now turns to and asks, where is your focus? Eulogy virtues or resume virtues? Things that are imperishably beautiful, things that are going to be forgotten. Don't let it take your death to have people stop and notice your character. May these be true of you today. And they can be true of you today. Because Christ lives in you. Christ has had us be born again to a living hope. Our heart now beats with the blood of Jesus. He can empower us to take up this vision. And so this leads us to the, the end of this section of First Peter. So let me land the plane here by, by wrapping up where Peter's been going for the last few weeks, because it is a consistent theme. Let's talk about the power of our relational witness. Something that perhaps is so obvious, but it's so obvious we might miss it through assumption. Three weeks ago, Peter told us about the beauty of the church, that you're a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so you and I are called to point this world to Jesus. But so often we hear that and because of the way we're shaped and discipled in this world, we immediately jump to the competencies 
and to the proficiencies. And we think, oh, what if they ask that question? I just won't know what to say. Oh, I wouldn't know how to articulate the gospel well enough to be persuasive. Oh, but what about those people over there that are apologetically gifted and minded? Perhaps I should leave the proclaiming the excellencies thing for them. And we disqualify ourselves because we think we need to be strong somewhere where we feel weak. But over the last three weeks, Peter has given us the strategy for how to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. And he hasn't said, hey, you're called to show Jesus to the world, so go to Bible college and get trained. He hasn't said, hey, you're called to show Jesus to the world, so get all the the big givers, get all the, the rich people in the church together and buy your way into cultural influence. He hasn't said get all the political activists together and go door knocking or put on a protest or something to to let the world know, proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. No, he's shown us that the most powerful way to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus is through, in our relationships, displaying the character of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the love of Jesus, how we respond when we're mistreated, how we honor those who are in authority, the consideration and care we give to our spouse, the fearlessness, the courage, the humility, the love, the peace that we display in our lives. Now, there's a place for talking. That will happen when you start to live like this. But there is a power in following Jesus, simply following Jesus in front of people and letting those people respond as you respond like Christ. And so think about that. Think about the the millions of opportunities you have on a day-to-day basis to live out what we've read in the last three weeks. The the brunch that you have with the girls. The mundane moments at home on a long weekend. How you react to things on social media about the government. When you leave the towel out on the bed. When your husband leaves his towel out on the bed. What you say to teachers and lecturers and bosses and, and managers. You are connected to so many different people in so many different moments. And each one of those connections is an opportunity. Sometimes it's going to be a very clear and obvious and present opportunity. And you're going to have an opportunity to to reflect and think about what to say or how to decide and and how to react. Other times, it's going to be reflexive. It's going to be in the moment. It's going to be a tiny drop in the bucket of a lifetime of living and responding like Jesus that's going to add to your trust and your integrity. And so Peter wants us not to despise the power of our relationships, that we should see them as moments to display the character of Christ, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness. And you know, there are people in our church, I was talking to one who's thinking about getting baptized, who have joined our church purely because they have watched other people's lives and then wanted to know where did they get their character from? Where did they get that integrity from? Where did they get that that peace from? And they are now following Jesus purely because they watched other people follow Jesus. This is what God wants for you. For you to follow Jesus in such a way that people who inevitably are watching you anyway. You are proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus in some way. Does he look excellent or not? And so the big idea of the last three weeks is that Jesus' humility is the model for how we engage with government, how we engage at work, how we engage in the home, how we engage as brothers and sisters in the church, how we engage with the world. 
And Peter ends the, the quote from David with, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. You know, I'm conscious that the last three weeks, it's, it's, it's such a, a mirror that exposes in us how often we fall short, how often we don't display the character of Christ, and yet God has given us a gift in prayer that we might ask Him to come and, and shape us into the image of Jesus, that we would be faithful to our calling. And so we're going to have a, a particular moment of prayer soon. I'm going I'm to pray to land the plane on this sermon and then we're going to stand and sing, and then I'm going to get back up, and I'm going to lead us through a particular moment of prayer where we come before God in confession and repentance of where we fall short of Jesus' character, that we might be assured of His grace and be empowered to live it out all the more. And so, invite the band back up. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll continue in that spirit of, of worship and prayer to wrap up our service. Let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for what you have been teaching us in these last few weeks. Lord, as we read your call for us to pursue and respond with the character of Christ, with his love, his humility, his uh, ability to handle mistreatment, his uh, ways of being subject to or submissive, his gentleness. Lord, we're struck by how those words do not describe us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw us so close to you that we would see the character of Christ and have it rub off on us. We thank you for your grace that is promised to us even in spite of our failure. And we thank you for your grace that empowers us to press on that we might be more like Jesus. And so fill us with your Holy Spirit to embody Him in our lives, in our relationships. Help us be people who, who get up from this service, get up from this moment, not to go back to things that are perishable, not to go back to things that are superficial, not to go back to putting our consideration and our understanding on, on all these other things that are going to perish. Lord, to put our focus on You and what You want and have for our lives. Be with us, Lord. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we entrust ourselves to you afresh today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.